Jeremiah 29, 1 through 9. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find welfare there. For thus says the Lord of the hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to say to you in my name, I did not send them, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome job. Thanks, Ryan. Did you practice? I feel like you had to practice. Verse 3, you crushed verse 3, and that's a tough one. So, well done. <laughs> um, we are uh, we're taking an extended season as a church, and we're trying to answer some fundamental questions. We're asking ourselves some fundamental questions and trying to answer who are we as a church, and who do we want to be as a church? And we have seen that we want to be a storied church, a grace-centered church, a fruitful church. And this morning, uh, I want to talk about the fact that we want to be a midtown church. And this is such a big deal to us. We're going to spend the next three weeks talking about this. We, we, We like to say that we're in midtown, we're not of midtown, but we're for midtown. And we're going to spend one week on each of those phrases and really drill down into what does that mean. And uh, so for today, we're going to talk about what does it mean to be in Midtown? What does it mean to be a Midtown church? And uh, we're going to try to answer that from this amazing passage in uh, Jeremiah 29. There's, there's so much going on in this uh, passage, but verse 1 really sets the table for the whole thing. I'm just going to read it to you. It says this, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. That's an important word. And to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So here's the context. In the 6th century, Babylon was one of the uh, global superpowers of the time. It was just a huge, diverse, massive city. One of the reasons why it was so big and one of the reasons why it was so diverse was because of their military strategy. What Babylon would do is they would go and when they would conquer smaller nations, they would wipe out enough people to uh, neutralize the threat, as it were, but they wouldn't destroy the whole population. They would take a chunk of that population, usually uh, the professionals, the leaders, the upper class, and they would bring them back to Babylon, back into their city, deport them back almost as captives uh, to live in Babylon, with the idea being that within a couple of generations, those people would just be assimilated into Babylonian culture and just absorbed. And so that Babylon not only gets a boost in their numbers and in their resources, but their threats no longer become things. 
And so that's what happened to the people of Israel. They were in Jerusalem, and Babylon comes in and wipes out a bunch of them and then takes a bunch of them back to Babylon. And so here are these people that have been ripped from their home, which was safe and homogenous and comfortable, and they're, they're ripped out of that and dropped into a very diverse, very pluralistic, very different context, different in almost every way, different racially, different uh, culturally, different morally, different religiously. And so the people of Israel, the exiles, are asking this question, how do we live in this context that is so different, so foreign from what we're used to? And it's fascinating, uh, the New Testament uses that exact same language to talk about Christians. It says Christians, if you're a Christian, you are in exile, meaning the experience of the Israelites is our experience. That is the Christian experience. We as Christians find ourselves in a context that's very different from us. It's pluralistic, it's diverse, it's different. And so the question for them is the same question for us. How do we live in a context like this? And so for, that's the question we're asking as a church. What does it mean for us to be a church in the context of Midtown specifically? And I, I want to give you two answers from this passage. There's more, but I'll just, we're going to just do two. It means that we want to embed and invest. We want to embed ourselves and we want to invest ourselves. What does that mean? Well, let's look at it one at a time. What, what do I mean by embed? Well, uh, as verse 1 explains, th- th- this was a letter that God sent through Jeremiah to the exiles. And part of the reason behind this letter was to correct a rumor. There was this rumor that had been going around that I didn't include it in your bulletin, but in the chapter before this, there's this dude named Hananiah, and he comes on the scene and he says, guys, exiles, listen, God, God talked to me, and he told me he's going to obliterate all these nasty, wicked pagans, and we're going to get out of this God-forsaken place in about two years. So just hang in there for two years and this will all be over. And it was a lie. It was uh, fake news. You see in your passage in verse 8 and 9, uh, God says, like, no, I didn't, I didn't send this dude. I didn't send these people talking like this, prophesying lies in my name. And so um, the reason why he's contradicting them is because the people of Israel had begun to believe it. And they had begun to believe that God's going to wipe these people out. And so it gave them a sense of superiority over the Babylonians. It gave them a sense of uh, antagonism towards the Babylonians. God's going to hate, the, you know, God hates these people. And so they began to think of themselves really as tourists. We're here for about two years. We just keep our head down, do our work, and then God's going to get us out of here. It's kind of like in the, uh, the show The Office when uh, how Stanley describes his, his experience with the work day when he says, this here is a run-out-the-clock situation where they're just counting down the days until they get out of this place. And so it must have been uh, shocking for them to receive this letter Because look at what it says. Look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So there's your intro. This is is God talking. And God says, here's what I'm, you know, listen up. Here's what I got to say. Verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. 
In other words, God's looking at these people and saying, make this place your home. He's talking about building houses and planting gardens and getting married and having kids and having grandkids. In other words, put down some roots. Make this place your home. Don't live separate from the city. Live in the city. Thread yourself into the fabric of this place and get involved you know, economically and culturally and in and, 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 and every other which way. That's what he's talking about when he says, um, essentially, embed yourself in this place. Don't relate to the city as a tourist. Don't relate to the city as a parasite, but embed yourself in it. And and we're going to see in a minute why God says this, that he wants his people to embed themselves into the fabric of a place so that they can bless it, so that they can love it, because you cannot love something from a distance. You have to get proximate. You have to get close. You have to get up close and personal. And I think this cuts against the grain of all of our natural instincts. If we have any tendency to want to love something, our tendency is to love something from a distance where it's safe. This is why it's a lot easier to love ideas than it is to love actually people. It's 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 easy to love things in kind of a general nebulous way. It's a lot harder to love a particular person in a particular context. So you'll have uh, religious people that talk about, you know, I love community. They love the idea of community. But it doesn't take long once you get in community to realize it's a lot harder to actually do that because there's friction and collision and fighting and you need grace and forgiveness. Or I've heard, I've heard religious people talk about, you know, you have a, I have a heart for the nations, big heart for the nations, and yet so hard to love my coworkers. Heart for the nations, so hard to love my coworkers. Um, but you don't have to be just, you know, religious to kind of have this contradiction. You know, you've heard secular people talk about, you know, their love for justice or their love for the poor or their love for the city or for those people. And it's a lot harder to love your neighbor. It's a lot harder to love your family than it is to love those people. Um, C.S. Lewis has an amazing book called Screwtape Letters, which if you're unfamiliar, the, the premise is fascinating. It's weird. It's fictional. But the premise is it's a collection of letters written from an older demon who is mentoring a younger demon on how to mess up this person's life. His, they're a patient, as, as they call it. And uh, I included it in the front of your bulletin, but here's what, here's what one of the letters says. Uh, the older, older demon, old, the coach, says, there is going to be some benevolence as well as some malice in your patient's soul. In other words, everybody has love and hatred in their soul. And he says this, he goes on, the great thing is to direct the malice to his immediate neighbors whom he meets every day and to thrust his benevolence out to the remote circumference to people he does not know. The malice thus becomes wholly real and the benevolence largely imaginary. So you see what Lewis is saying, right? He's saying it's easy to love somebody over there, some faceless person whom you've never met, it's a lot harder to love your coworkers. It's a lot harder to love your family. It's a lot harder to love your neighbors. And so, according to Lewis, when that happens, that's uh, satanic, where your love becomes kind of imaginary and fake, and your hatred, your frustration, your bitterness is what is the most real. 
Uh, Tish Harrison Warren has, uh, she, she, you know, makes this joke about herself in one of her books where she says, quote, I'm a pacifist who yells at her husband. And she's just pointing out this, this, contra- this you know, amusing contradiction in her that she loves the idea of not fighting, not engaging in warfare, and yet, in a small way, engages in warfare in the living room. So what does all this mean? What, the point is, here's the point. The point is that God calls his people to love in proximity. Or another way to put it is God calls his people to embed themselves in the place where he has put them. That's, that's what we're talking about. So for us, as we're, as we're wrestling with this question as a church, what does this mean for us as a church to embed ourselves in Midtown? It means that we want to be a community that is, is not parasitic to Midtown. It's not, it's not tourists to Midtown. It means that we want to be a community that doesn't just come into Midtown once a week for a church service or comes into Midtown every now and then for a good meal or a fun show at the Shell or something, but to be a community that is actively, intentionally threading our very lives into the fabric of this place, getting involved in the neighborhoods and getting to know our neighbors so that we can get to know them and learn from them and and bless them, Uh, getting connected to cultural institutions and education and nonprofits around this part of the city. Uh, to, to be a community that is actively seeking out how can we care for the material needs of our friends and our neighbors here in this part of the city. That's what we talk about, about embedding ourselves here. Now, here's the question, why Midtown, though? There's a lot of, there's a lot of places. Why Midtown? Well, a lot of reasons for this, but here's one. Uh, if you look at the map of Memphis, the, the map of Memphis as a whole tells the story of our city. Where the city began downtown on the river, and as the city expanded, there was this general trend, general trend of white flight out east. And so that's why you have the bulk of the private schools out east. That's why you have uh, big name churches that started in midtown and downtown and packed up and moved out east. There's lots of reasons for this. Uh, of course, some of it was racially motivated. Some of it was economically motivated. I mean, you can get a lot more real estate for less money the further away from the urban center you get. Uh, some of it, you I mean you could make the case that it's generally safer the further away you get from kind of center city stuff. But there was this general trend that, you know, 50, 75 years or so, there was this movement of resources away from midtown and downtown and a movement of, of Christians, Bible-believing Christians, leaving this part of the city. And in that vacuum, uh, you have people that aren't Christians, unchurched and de-churched people flooding into Midtown and downtown. So, for example, our, our good friend, our assistant pastor, Ben Winkler, told me this story a couple of uh, months ago that I guess this story took place a few years ago. He was getting to know some of his neighbors, some of his friends from the neighborhood. And there was this Midtown guy that he was talking with and kind of doing the introductory chit-chat, who are you, where are you from kind of stuff. And the guy was saying, oh, yeah, we used to live way out east, but we moved into Midtown because we had to get away from those Christians out there, man. <laughs> and it was like, so, Ben, what do you do? And, uh, and um, I'm sure it was really fun and awkward for just a moment there. Um, you know, when, when we first moved here, one of the things that I did was get together with a, a handful of different pastors in Midtown and just kind of pick their brains about what it's like to do life here. And one of the pastors that I met told me this. He said, people move to Midtown, quote, 
to get away from big steeple evangelicalism. Now, if that's true, if that story is, of our city is generally true, you have a lot of people that aren't Christians moving away from Midtown. You have a lot of people, sorry, you have a lot of people that are Christians moving away from Midtown, a lot of people that aren't Christians moving into Midtown. And if you're a Christian and you're thinking missionally about our city, that's a sad story. And so what we want to do as a church is, is try to undo some of that trajectory. We're not the only ones do it. There's, a lot, there's a, other amazing churches that are thinking along the same lines. But here we are in this part of the city, and we want to be here as a witness to embed ourselves into a part of the city that typically, proportionally, is underrepresented by Christians. And so here's where I have to, you know, I feel like I'm walking on... on a landmine because I do not want to insinuate at all that if you're a Christian and you live out east, you're doing something wrong. And if you're a Christian and you live in Midtown, you're necessarily doing something right. Because you can be a Christian and live out east and be deeply, sacrificially, missionally involved in caring for the needs of our city. And you can be a Christian living right here in Midtown and be just as much of a you know, parasitic consumer as everybody else. Point being, there's no Bible verse that says you have to live in Midtown or serve this part of the city to expend your labor and your efforts in this part of the city. But I hope you might want to. I hope if you see the picture and you think, wow, there's so much opportunity, there's so much need, I would love to start thinking creatively, how can I embed myself more and more into this part of the city? I think it would be amazing. I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if more and more people came into this part of Memphis with the attitude and the mindset of, I want to love God and I want to love my neighbor. This is not, that's not a guilt trip. There's no sh- this is not a shame fest. This is just, a, this is just letting you know, this is, what, this is what Redeemers wants to do. This is who we are and who we want to be, and we're inviting as many people as we can to join us in it because we think it's worth it. We think for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of our city, it's worth it. So that's part of what it means to be a Midtown church. We want to embed ourselves here. Now, number two, secondly, uh, why though? Well, uh, let's look at it. We want also to invest, not just to embed ourselves, but also to invest ourselves in this part of the city. And here's where I get this from. Look at uh, verse 7. God goes on and says, but... Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, some of you might know that the, uh, the word welfare there is the Hebrew word shalom. And there's not one English word that fully captures the meaning of this word. It's so rich. It's, it's so just pregnant with meaning. It, is, uh, it essentially means holistic flourishing. It means it's a, it's a word that describes the way things ought to be. So when God calls these exiles to seek the shalom of this city, he's saying, I want you to to think about and serve your city so that every dimension of it is thriving, economically, culturally, morally, spiritually, every component of the city. I want you to seek its welfare, seek its flourishing, and pray for it. In other words, what God's saying is, 
I want you to take your gifts, your time, your energy, your resources, and push them out, invest them in the place where you are. Don't just seek your good, but seek their good. Don't just seek a life that's thriving for you, but seek a life that is thriving for them. Don't just seek your own flourishing, but seek the flourishing of the context where God has put you. Now, remember, the Babylonians did not like Israel. They had conquered them. They had killed them. They are trying to exterminate them. They fundamentally disagree with Israel's conception of ultimate reality. And God looks at his people and says, don't leave, don't retaliate, invest. Seek the welfare of this place where you find yourself and pray for it. Now, we're going to talk about this uh, a lot more in about two weeks. Ben's going to preach a sermon on what it means to be a church that is for Midtown. So I'm not not going to uh, steal his thunder and keep going. But I I will ask this. How can we become people who do this? How can we become people who would think about others in the effort of wanting to bless them, maybe even others that fundamentally disagree with us. How do you get that kind of selflessness inside of you? Religion can't generate that. Secularism can't generate that. Only Jesus can generate that. Because in the heart of the gospel, you have someone who gave and expended his life his resources, his gift, his energy for the welfare of the very people who disagreed with him. I mean, think about this. Jesus is the only one who had a right to be in the family of God. From all eternity, God shared, Jesus enjoyed the the fellowship of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, and he willingly left. He willingly extracted himself from the Trinitarian fellowship from all eternity and came and moved in to our neighborhood. He got proximate. He embedded himself in our world, in a world that was very hostile and very opposed to him. And why did he do it? So that you and I might experience shalom. He gave up his shalom so that we could have what he, what was his. I mean, think about it. What was Jesus experiencing on the cross? On the cross, Jesus is experiencing a breaking of economic shalom. He dies a beggar without a penny to his name. On the cross, Jesus is experiencing a breaking of social shalom. He dies a total outcast, uh, a total outsider. His, His enemies mocked him. His friends abandoned him. He experienced the breaking of physical shalom. He's bleeding out. He's suffocating. He's died and buried. And on the cross, he's experiencing a breaking of spiritual shalom. What's crazy about the cross is not just that it was painful for Jesus, but it was the agony of being separated from his father's love. He is experiencing, he is becoming a true exile, cast out of God's family. Why? So that you and I could be brought in. So that you and I could experience the shalom that is his a shalom that, is, that, that he has freely given to us that will one day spread throughout all of Midtown, that will one day spread throughout this entire world. Now, if you look at the cross, and you look at what Jesus has done, and you say, okay, 
I'll just do that. I'll go be like him. It'll never work. Because Jesus is not just your example. He's your redeemer. He's not just someone to say, hey, emulate me. Just act like I do. He is someone who said, I have come to do something for you that you couldn't do for yourself. I have come to rescue you and to provide you with a gift that you can never earn or merit in and of yourself. And when you experience that degree of sacrificial love, that degree of mind-boggling grace, it will change the way that you relate to your neighbors. It has to. In fact, let me give you an example. Um, Earlier this week, as many of you know, there was a shooting at Cummings Elementary School. And it was tragic and awful. There's two 13-year-old boys. Apparently, there was an altercation. Apparently, there was, uh, they'd been having conflict. And one of the boys brought a gun to school, shot the other one. Thankfully, the, um, the kid that was shot survived. And apparently, according to the news, they said he's going to be okay. And I was reading this morning a, um, an interview that a reporter did with the father of the kid that was shot. And he says in this article that he does not harbor any hatred towards the the 13-year-old that shot his son. And in fact, here's what he says in this article. Quote, it's about love, it's about reconciliation, and God has shown grace. Thank God my son is alive. Grace and mercy. I want to see that same grace and mercy flow to the other child, the shooter. God is a God of second chance And I think we need to be a people of second chances. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. Here's a man that's looking at somebody that shot his child. And he says, I want the same grace and mercy that I have received to flow to him as well. I don't know anything that can create that in the human heart other than an experience of grace and mercy. That's what the gospel does. When you see the grace and the mercy and the love that has been given to you in Jesus, you begin to look at other people, people that disagree with you, maybe even your enemies, maybe people that are trying to shoot your children, and you want grace and mercy for them too. Only the gospel can do that. So who do we want to be? We want to be a church that is intentionally embedding ourselves in Midtown, selflessly investing in it. Because that's what Jesus has done for us. Consider that an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray. Thank you, Father, that you loved us enough to send your son after us, to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. And I pray that that grace and that mercy would not just be a sentimental idea, a nice little religious theological category, but that it would be a a bomb that gets into our DNA, gets into our very bones and transforms us from the inside out, that we would want grace and mercy for others, that we would want grace and mercy even for our enemies. Would you be so kind as to do that radical internal surgery inside of us that only your spirit can? We pray all this in the name of our.